Here we are, January 15th, 2012, lecture discussion number 52 on the Book of Romans. And I should, I should announce for the people who are on the internet uh, that it is uh, as low as 18 below, I, I understand, today in Anchorage. And we have, what do we got, 12 feet of snow, 10 feet of snow, whatever we've got here. So uh, be happy that you are not here with us and be really happy you're not in Fairbanks or Valdez, for that matter, Whittier, all places that I have spent too much time. Okay, we have found ourselves battling through the five warnings of the book of Hebrews, and we have found ourselves doing that because of uh, Romans 4. Romans 4 is the definitive place in, in the Scripture. That is where the Holy Spirit uses the Apostle Paul to do this, to place these two things in contrast with each other. Those who believe God, okay, and God commands us to believe Him. So we have two kinds of people. Those who believe God with respect to His salvation, and the other kind of people, contrasted, He calls them Him who works. And so right off the bat now in Romans, we have this tremendous uh, comparison and this tremendous uh, battle, if you will, that has gone on for ages. But those are the two sides. You're on one side or the other. You cannot be on both sides, much to the dismay of those who will try to say so. That should be obvious here as the lecture goes along over the next few weeks. But uh, they are absolute opposites. Him who works is the absolute opposite of believe God. Uh, with respect to salvation and the doctrine of salvation. And what that means, to restate the obvious, is that if someone has mankind's salvation, mankind's reconciliation with God, mankind's eternal life, and by the way, this is as God defines life, life does not mean existence to God. He does not define it as existence. Everyone has existence. Everyone has a destiny. Uh, There are two uh, distinct places that you exist. One is with God. Existence with God, peace with God, in His presence, He calls that life. That is His definition of life. So, start again here. If someone declares that salvation is accomplished by human effort or human work or human directed, then that... Those such persons do not believe God and do not believe what the scriptures say. That's Romans 4, 3. It is plain as day, right on the table, can't miss it. Those who are human based do not believe God. Their works are debt, death, and ruin. That's the essence of Romans 4. That's Paul's fundamental teaching in Romans 4. That is why Romans 4 becomes so prominent and so valuable to know. Now, needless to say, many religious persons, and I've never been accused of being a religious person by anybody who knows me, but many religious persons, I would like someday to be recognized as a religious person, just to know that I could get into the right restaurants or something. I don't think it's going to happen soon. I don't know what causes people to say that I am not a religious person. Don't most religious persons drink Diet Coke during the sermon? I think they do, or they should. But anyway, there are many religious persons not to make them unhappy with me, but they are very unhappy with Romans 4. 
They cannot accept that God's plan of salvation is a belief system. They do not like it being a belief system. Because that's what he declares it to be. Belief, faith, grace. That's what it is. Grace being the key element of all that here and that it must be a gift. It has to be believed. It is faith and it has to be a gift. It cannot be any other way. And that, by the way, is because he's omniscient. He would have known if there was another way, wouldn't he? But they cannot accept the religious sides of things, that God's plan is a salvation, um, I'm sorry, God's plan of salvation is a belief system. Whosoever believes in Christ should not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever believes. It is not whosoever works. Again, you're not Belief versus works. That's your side. Pick a side. You're on one side, whether you want to be or not. You cannot be on both sides because the sides, as I said, are absolute opposites. Belief, many times I say this in order to get it through, but you never know. Some people with all the many people who now listen on the Internet, um, it, it bears repeating. Belief is not a physical act. Belief is a supernatural act. It is a non-physical. If it is non-physical, it is supernatural. So belief is a spiritual act, as is faith. Belief, faith in Jesus Christ, who is God himself, creator God, the creator of all things. That's who he is in the flesh. He added humanity so that we could understand the invisible God. He is the invisible made visible That's what that's all about, the adding of humanity. So faith, belief in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, that is what saves a supernatural, non-physical act. Because you really have your choice. You should know this about yourself. You are two components, right? You are a spiritual component and you are a physical component. He wants the the spiritual component. That, by the way, not familiar with this, is called substance dualism. You are made of two different substances. One of your substances is a spiritual substance. The other is a physical substance. They are made of different material. The spiritual material is different. They are different substances. Hence, substance dualism. Two substances. Versus monism. Which is evolutionary thought. Evolutionary philosophy. You are only one substance. A physical substance. The Bible very clear. You are saved with a non-physical event, a spiritual event, the spiritual part of you, the belief part, non-physical. And people don't like that much. They don't like it at all. They want to add themselves into God's plan. They want to do this. They want to be part of the process. I always ask, why do you want to be part of the process? You got a really good system here, and what do you want to do with it? You want to add yourself. I don't want you in it. I certainly don't want you in mine, and you would be wise not to want me in yours. Don't pollute it, right? But people don't like it. They want to add themselves into God's plan, and really the reason is very simple. They want what? They want control. They want authority. Same thing. They want power, and they want credit. They want to be responsible for their salvation. They don't want it to be a gift. They want to go out and earn it. So then they can say what? Mine. I earned mine. You didn't earn yours. Therefore, I'm what? That's right. Betty Lou, better than you. 
And thus, we go into the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. That's how we got the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. Where we are today, I know I said we are in Romans, and we are. Whenever you're in Romans, you are in Hebrews, eventually, and you are at the five warnings. Very important to know that there are five warnings. If you're reading the book of Hebrews, if you do not identify the five warnings, you don't know the five warnings are there, you have no idea that there is even five warnings, or what they're warning and who they're warning, then you're not going to get through uh, Hebrews very easily. In fact, you won't get through it, just to help you out there. So we end up in the five warnings of the book of Hebrews because of this discussion in Romans 4. We're at so many people on the him who works side. So many people who have the him who works, the purveyors of the him who works, they attempt to get around Romans 4 because it's a big problem. I'm going to deal with a problem. If I have a works-based, a human-based salvation system where I demand that human effort and human obedience and a set of regulations and a set of traditions and a set of uh, organizational statutes have to be followed, otherwise you will lose your membership. If you lose your membership and you're no longer a member in good standing, then you'll lose your parking space. If you lose your parking space, you lose your choir robe. And if you lose your choir robe and you can't take communion and you're not part of the buffet, then what's happened to you? That's right. You've lost your salvation because I deem it so, because I am the grand poobah of whatever particular organization I happen to run for the money. And so the people who are on the him who works side, they distort Hebrews, the five warnings, and they corrupt it. They corrupt the clear meaning, all in order to bind and ensnare the weak, by the way, and to get around the clear teaching of Romans 4. And last couple of Sundays, we trudged through the second warning. We knocked out one warning, and that's the warning uh, against disobedience. And the disobedience was to stay out of the city of Jerusalem for the Hebrew Christians whom that warning is given to. He is saying, don't go back to the city of Jerusalem. Don't go back to Israel. Do not go back into a pharisaical Judaism. Um, That's Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13. And remember, always, when you're in the five warnings, there's an underlayment. There's a substrate. What is it? I said last week. If you weren't here last week, you get to go first in the buffet. You have to answer no questions. What's the underlayment, the substrate, and the, the second warning, all the warnings, frankly? You can do this. Show off, or there might be a new person here. That's that? No, in the, uh, it is Matthew 12, right? Remember, please, please nod your head while I'm not looking at you and pretend to remember. It is Matthew 12. What is Matthew 12? Thank you from the new people. They catch it on really fast. What's it? Yes, it is called, that is where the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs, uh, or the unpardonable sin, if you will, and we went over that last week and many, many times throughout the years, and uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it cannot be committed by an individual, you cannot commit it, it is committed by a nation, and that nation has to have God in the flesh in front of them, so they must be a nation, in this case it's the nation of Israel, and they must have God in the flesh in front of him, creator God in front of them in the flesh, they must see him and talk to him, and then they must reject his kingship or his messiahship on the basis that it isn't really God there, that he has Satan inside of him. He's possessed by Satan. That is the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. You cannot commit.
admitted, you are not the nation of Israel. Okay? Got that again. And that occurs in Matthew 12. And the judgment on the nation of Israel, because of Matthew 12, is the destruction of their temple, or the temple, if you will, the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Jeru, Jerusalem, right? Jehovah-Jireh-Salam is where that comes from. Jehovah-Jireh means God will provide a sacrifice or peace, if you will. So, the first or the second warning is Paul telling the Hebrew Christians, don't go back because of Matthew 12. If you go back to Jerusalem, the temple will be destroyed there and the city will be destroyed. It was in A.D. 70, as you know, but... Uh, what ultimately became Emperor Titus at the time, he was uh, General Titus. He came in and, and uh, took the gold out of the temple. He killed everybody. And so that is what Paul is saying to the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews uh, 3. And that is the, the second warning. Do not disobey the uh, commandment, if you will, to stay out of the city and stay out of Judaic um, Judaism or Pharisaical Judaism. Okay? And next, last Sunday, lecture number 51, that is for the, uh, the internet folks, we started on the third warning. We started on the third warning, the danger of immaturity. So, second warning, danger of disobeying the commandment to stay out of Jerusalem and out of Phariseeism. And, uh, uh, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) because of Matthew 12, the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh. That was second warning, now third warning. And we started that last week, and that is the danger of immaturity. And that warning is against remaining stagnant. You see, you would not go back to Judaism. You would not go back to Jerusalem. You would not disobey uh, what is the result of Matthew 12, the commandment to stay out by God himself. You wouldn't do that unless you were what? Weak. Immature. And so the warning against immaturity, the warning against remaining stagnant, failing to progress, failing to, refusing to move, to become wise. That's Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 20. Those of you who are following along. 5, 11 through 6, 20. I'm not going to get that far today. I actually like to start at 5, 10 because of what I call the Kizedek bracket. But uh, we'll get to that perhaps in a few minutes. And if I'm correct, I didn't get past Hebrews 6.6 6 last week, and so uh, that's where we're going to go right now. We're going to reset the second or the third warning, I'm sorry. So open your textbooks to Hebrews 5. Let's start at verse 10, because I like to do that, just to bring in Melchizedek. And let's, uh, you read along while I read it into the record. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I can erase this because I'm about to add a whole lot more. Let me repeat 510 now. Called by God as high priest, 
high priest, stop really fast, high priest, Melchizedek. Amanda here, have Amanda spell Melchizedek backwards, which she will do. Scary. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Last week I said it this way, because you have become stupid. Because you've become dull of hearing, you don't understand who the high priest is or why the high priest is there and how it's connected to the high priest that is Melchizedek. You don't know any of this, and because you don't know any of this, you are stagnating and refusing to become wise. You have no wisdom. You won't take the time. You refuse to learn. You don't care. You won't do it. And therefore, you're what? You're a victim. One of my favorite books to talk to people about is uh, by a gentleman that is not Christian at all, please don't think he is, called Gavin De Becker, who wrote Gift of Fear. And I give it to girls a lot because I want girls to be aware of what is out there in the criminal element, how they think, how they target you. How they figure out who to target, how they, how they get selected, how to be one of the wise so you can navigate dangerous places, how to keep, you, as you know, one of the most favorite things I do in life is, is uh, talking to telemarketers. What I love to do is to do to the telemarketers what they do to us. I just love it. All I did was spend a few minutes learning telemarketing techniques. Um, it's one of my little hobbies when I was uh, younger back in the 1840s, before the Civil War. But I used to, uh, seriously, I had a guy call me from uh, uh, Allstate. I don't want to pick on Allstate, but he was a nice young man, Jason. Hi, Jason. Uh, And he went through his system with me. Do you want the best possible insurance ever? No. I don't. Well... Why, you don't? For the cheapest price, you don't want the best insurance? No, I don't want it. But, uh, see, he's been taught by telemarketer school to get a yes out of me. And if I give him a yes, then he wins. And I'm not going to let him win. I'm going to tell him no to everything. Is, it, is this Steve Chronister? No. <laughs> Never give an S, a yes to a telemarketer. It destroys them. Pretty soon they break down laughing because they can't do anything. They can't move you at all. Well, that's what I want you to be. I want you to know, that's just a small little shallow example. If you know high priest in Melchizedek, you jump from one of the victims, you jump from victimhood, one of the weak, one of the ones who walk into traps, who get fooled so easily, who struggle through life, and you start to become one of the wise. And this is what he's saying to you right off the bat. Because you are weak, you don't know who Melchizedek, I can't even talk to you about Melchizedek. I can't even talk to you about the high priest. Structure in the sacrificial system because you are dull of hearing. That's how he starts. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again. The first principles of the oracles of God that you have come to need milk and not solid food. I can't give you solid food, he says. You're weakly. You're useless. You can't fight. You're in the... Oh, by the way, next week I was talking to Kathy about this. 
He says in Scripture, God does, don't forsake the assembly. Why does he say that? Is the assembly a great place? Is this fun? Are we really liking this? Okay, we got Kentucky Fried Chicken today, so maybe that's not a good day to bring it up. Music was pretty good. But why, do we, why does he say for, don't forsake the assembly? Is the assembly filled with really nice, wonderful people? That No, backstabbing. You were here for the Christmas party. You know what these people were like. This is brutal. I had one gentleman come up. Doesn't come here. But Andy, but this already comes up. He says, the guy's going to steal my worm drive saw. I'm so angry. I can barely deal with it. So it brings out the worst in me. Yes, it does. That's the old adage, right? The Christmas party does not build character. It reveals character. That's what it does. In sports, whatever your a, whatever your thing. Don't forsake the assembly because of what it says about you when you do that. What are you saying when you forsake the assembly? I don't want to be around those people. What did you just say about yourself? Oh, by the way, are those people fun? Nice? No. Well, you don't want to be around them. How come? What's your reason? I don't want to be around them. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector, right? That's what you're saying, isn't it? Thank God I'm not like those nasty people at Cliffside. I don't need to be around them or anybody else. Because I'm what? Better? Is that what you think? You in big wampum trouble right off the bat. God does not want you to to forsake the assembly. That's a direct command from your commanding officer. Don't do it. Does he get anything out of it? What's God get out of us? What's the answer to that? You should yell it out. What does God get out of us? Nothing. You can keep it. What are you saying about God when you forsake the assembly? See, it's not only what are you saying about yourself, but what are you saying about God? Anyway, next week I might go through all of those things. The reason I thought of it just now is because Kathy talked to me earlier and because this is a situation where you are in an army. You have a weapon and a uniform and you're telling God, I don't want to wear my weapon. I don't want to go to the I don't want to go to the fort. I don't want to I want to stay home by myself and sit in my room, play video games till my eyes bleed. Um, Or watch TV. So be careful with that attitude. Don't forsake the assembly for what it says about you. But in this case, here is spiritual immaturity. And he's saying to them, I can't use you really very much because you don't know what to do. You're in the Christian soldier business. You've got your uniform and a gun, but you shoot the wrong direction and as I said last week you can't tie your shoes you can't feed yourself we have to carry you around what do you know about the high priest that and, and the high priest Melchizedek you ought to be teachers again be teachers but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a baby but solid food belongs to those who are full age that is who by reasons but who by reason have of use have their senses 
exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, the first principles, leaving the discussion of the beginning, leaving first grade, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. There we are, right back, as I said last week, right back to where we are. We have the two sides. I have the belief side, and I have the dead works side. Quit, he is saying, quit struggling here. Figure it out. Don't stay in a place where you think your human effort is going to save you, or some tradition is going to save you, or some... some I don't know. Ordinance? Membership? What saves you? Belief. Faith. In the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. That's what saves you. You have corrupted blood and corrupted flesh and you need a blood transfusion and you need a flesh. Uh, uh, you need serious plastic surgery. Just look at yourselves. Okay, he's got the resources. He's the only one with the material. He can accomplish it. That's why he is called the great healer. All of us need new blood and we need new flesh. Okay, that's what it's about. And that is what communion is. It's a symbol of that. It is not what communion... Never mind, don't get me started there either. So... Leaving the discussion of the first principles of Christ, let us go on to maturity... Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Get that figured out. Get Romans 4 figured out. Dead works is useless. Belief is how it is. That is the salvation system. Of the doctrine, and then, and now, of the doctrines of the, of baptisms or cleansings really is what that is. Of laying on of hands. That's Leviticus 16. We'll get to that in a minute. Of the resurrection of the dead. You gotta know all the resurrections and of the great white throne. Those are the first principles. I'll put it on the board in a second. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put into open shame. Okay. Very helpful when we get into one of these to make a list. Not that we need a list, but what does it do? It makes the list makers very, very happy. We want them to be happy. List makers do all the work in the church. Why do they do it? Because they have a list. And they know what's on the list. The non-list makers, what do we call them? That's right, they're the grasshoppers. And from the grasshoppers. Okay, very hot off the time, they will make the list. It usually helps everyone, even the grasshoppers. So, again, how does this begin? It begins with high priest and Melchizedek. Do you know who the high priest, or what the high priest is, what that reference is? Do you know who the high priest Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? You've got to know it. How come you have to know it? That's how this starts. You don't even understand what he's saying. How are you going to figure it out? So, right off the bat, you have to answer, who is Melchizedek? I'll tell you really quickly, Melchizedek is Christ himself. 
pre-incarnate, if you will, or a Christophany or a uh, Theophany, as it's called. It is Christ before he put himself into humanity in that sense, came in a human form, and he was Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. Now you should note Hebrews 6.20. Don't turn there. It also says High Priest Melchizedek. And Hebrews 5.6. It also says High Priest Melchizedek. Obviously, High Priest Melchizedek is doing this. It is bracketing. All of this stuff in it. Everything that I just read is bracketed by Mel... I'm sorry, Mel Priest. Never mind. Where's my medicine? All of this that I just read is bracketed by High Priest Melchizedek. And so it's in a High Priest Melchizedek context. And in a High Priest context. So all of that, you have to understand the high priest and you have to understand the Melchizedek. And by the way, when you do that, that explains 7, 8, and 9 of Hebrews chapter 5. Let me read that. For in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's another chapter, another Hebrews passage that is used to further the ambitions of the deniers of Christ's deity. The people who do not believe, who do not know, who don't care that Jesus Christ is God himself, creator of all things. He is the creator of the created order. He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of time, matter, energy, space. All things. The people who don't believe that, who thinks that Jesus Christ is just simply another nice person, who God kind of every now and then would come and turn on a switch. So sometimes Christ is just a guy, sometimes, boom, he's got power, Ooh, and then the switch goes off again. And then a little more power. And they think that Christ is crying and whining and complaining and doesn't know things. And the truth is, he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God at all times. There's never a time when he is anything but that. He can't be anything but who he is. I don't have any time today to make an exposition of of, uh, Hebrews 5, 7, and 9, except to say that those three verses do the opposite of what they are mostly used for. They powerfully declare the Godhood of Christ. And that's obvious when you understand that they're within the high priest Melchizedek bracket. When you understand that, then they make sense. And that's why you have to go there. Otherwise, you'll get confused and somebody will come along and hit you upside the head and said, Oh, look, it, Christ was crying for himself. Does it say Christ was crying for himself? It doesn't say that. It said he was crying. Who was he crying for? Not himself. Who's left? Yeah. Why is he crying? Not for himself. By the way, it's identical to Gethsemane. It is, a, it, it is what happened at Gethsemane. That's your first clue. Same as Gethsemane. He's not crying for himself. He never cries for himself. He's omniscient God. So what makes him sad? What makes omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God sad to where he will weep? What causes the weeping from God? 
What causes that is the people who choose to reject him, the people who don't believe, the people who have some alternate salvation system that will lead them to debt and ruin and condemnation. Those who refuse the commandment to believe. Can he save himself from death? Yeah, he says so, John 2.19. I can save myself from death, John 2.19. So what's the definition of death in there? Notice it's from death and not from dying. Again, apply the sacrificial system, it'll solve for you. And that'll provide the proper definitions of heard and godly feared and learned obedience. Some people think that Christ had to learn things. Why does, you got to be kidding. He's omniscient God. What can he learn? He knows all things. That is the end, by the way, of the book of John, where Peter finally has to say to him, you know all things. And as soon as you understand that Christ knows all things, then you are what? You're wise. And into service you can go. We give you a rifle. We actually put a barrel on it. Not we, him. And we give you ammunition. So you won't shoot each other in the back. Now you're functional. But you must understand that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh and omniscient and knows all things, so he can't learn anything. He's infinite God. Having been perfected, I've said it so many times, having been perfected is is a process in the sense that it is witnessed. Having been perfected means that he was inspected and declared to be perfect. Did he know he was perfect? Yeah. Who didn't know? The people who were inspecting him. It's like the FDA. They stamp it. They're stamping it. didn't make it anything. All it did was put the stamp on it, right? That's what having been perfected means. It doesn't mean he wasn't perfect for a while, and then he became perfect. If you understand the sacrificial system and the high priest and Melchizedek, then all that unravels, and you're not fooled by people who use it to beat on the creation—I'm sorry—the deity of Christ. Anyway, don't be overwhelmed or intimidated by those who insist these verses are evidence that Jesus Christ is not the Creator of all things. John 1:3. Again, more of the same. It comes from the Him Who Works side. They don't know that they don't know that Hebrews 5:7-9. Through nine is unlocked by the high priest Melchizedek salvation or sacrificial system context, and they don't care. By the way, they have an they have an agenda. Okay, where was I? I got A on the board. How long is it going to take us to go through? I'll go fast now. B. Hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain to you? Because you don't know A. So I can't explain to you anything difficult because you can't understand anything. The reason you can't understand anything is because you are, that's what you are, I won't say it, dull. People get mad at me calling people names. And I really feel bad about that. (laughs) I don't feel bad at all. They feel bad. That was a fake. I have to change now because they've stolen my fake. Sorry. GCR. They're stolen from me. And I, I need to sue them. <laughs> Which we will. So, now we raise money. This is that how, never mind. This is not to say, isn't that how all churches make money? And that would get me in trouble and I would feel bad. Oh, I, no, I wouldn't. I feel bad. 
Okay, hey, teachers, you should be teachers, but you're not teachers. Why aren't you teachers? Because this is the problem. That's the problem. And nothing I can do until we get past that. We can't get past that until you know who Melchizedek is. And if I ask you all to write me a paper on Melchizedek now, what's the score? What's the grade? How would we do? That's right, we get a big set. It would be so hard on Seth because he's got, he's got a, an F plus now. I know he's doing good. That's for his mom. Huh? All A's except for an F plus. We're so proud. That's a mighty fine parody right there. Okay. Oh my goodness. I'm walking down. There are first principles. The first principles. Those are, I don't want to call them easy. There's nothing easy about Scripture. It's the mind of God. But there are some things that you have to start with. And, and you, if you don't know them, then you're on the milk, and all you have is only milk. And my goodness, you should be teachers, but you're drinking milk. You're eating Gerber's. You've got ground-up baby. You can't feed yourself. Somebody's got to feed you. It's terrible. Terrible. You're, you're un, no solid food. You're unskilled. You can't fight. You can't help anybody. You, you can't shoot a gun if you're a baby. Now, is that your plan? Is that what you want? Because, let me tell you, that is the condition right there. You're dull. You're, you don't know the first principles. You can't tell me anything about Melchizedek. You don't understand. You eat only milk, parade, baby food. You can't fight. You're a baby. That's the condition of the church today. That's the contemporary, seeker-sensitive, let's all sing kumbaya and make sure the drums are loud. And uh, when you're not looking, we'll make you cry and take your money. Okay? When you're a full age, you can now do something really cool. You can think. You can reason. And you can tell the difference between good and evil. What's that tell you? Babies don't know the difference between good and evil. If you're a baby, you don't know the difference between good and evil. You may think you do, but you don't. I used to tell my 16-year-old kids, if I could make you the opposite of what you are, just do everything the opposite, not my kids, the kids I used to teach. I probably said it to my kids, too. If I could just get you to be the opposite, then we would be so successful. What you think is good is really evil. What you think is evil is really good. You have your Bible, oh, I'm deal with the Bible. I want to go read comic books and play Halo 47. You do the opposite of what you thought. You'd be a good chip. You don't know good and evil because you can't think. You don't want to think. So let's leave this discussion of the simple, of the first principles and let's move on. Get, get rid of, get away from the baby stuff, the baby principles. And move on to maturity. It says perfection in your Bible. But the word means maturity. People don't understand that. Oh, I'm going to be perfect. No, you're not. You're going to be mature. I've never met a perfect, mature person yet. 
And, and the, the not laying the foundations again. Quit working in cement. Get on with building the house. Oops. And, and, oh, I got something wrong here. There we go. You think this is easy to figure out the alphabet? It's not. I am a trained professional. And then again, he repeats this dead works, dead versus faith, or dead works versus belief, same thing that's in Romans 4. And there's a difference. If you faith towards God, what's the implication? Do you have belief towards God? Or do you have the opposite of that, which is what? If you don't have belief towards God, in other words, if you don't have salvation that is a belief towards God, what do you have instead? What have you replaced it with? Belief towards yourself, which is a work-based human-based system, which is the opposite. And then the sevenfold cleansing provisions. That is the baptisms there. That's the sevenfold cleansing provisions. There's just two that I want you to think about. I'm not going to write them on the board. I'm going to have to start picking up the pace here. But I want you to know the ashes of the red heifer. Whenever you come in contact with a dead body in the Old Testament, you are you need cleansing. And the way you are cleansed is with the ashes of the red heifer. What is the red heifer? Where do we get the ashes? Where are they now, by the way? Where are the ashes of the red heifer now? They're used for cleansing the what? The priesthood. So the priesthood could do what? They could do their job. We got to have those ashes of the red heifer. Those are very important. We get the ashes of the red heifer, we can start building a new temple. That'll be a big deal. That'll be an incredible piece of prophecy. And they are looking very hard for the ashes of the red heifer. Most people think they're in the Ark of the Covenant. And if they're there, if we go home tomorrow and wake up in the morning and the nation of Israel has discovered the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony and they have the handwritten manuscript of Moses, they have the budded rod of Aaron, they have the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God and they have the ashes of the red heifer, this world will change like that. Everything that you thought was important won't be important. It will happen in an instant. And the Jews will start building their temple just like they're prophesied to do. And that will start a what? A war. And it won't matter where you bury me. It won't matter what your credit card debt is. It won't matter what your house payment is. It won't matter if you've got a car. It won't matter if you got a business. It won't matter if you're taking guitar lessons. It won't matter. Nothing will be the same. Except what? Believe. You either have faith and belief towards God or you have faith and belief in yourself. Good luck with that yourself thing. And then the next one, sevenfold cleansing provisions. Start with the ashes of the red heifer. Go home and, and Google that. They didn't say the word. Go home and look that up. And then the cleansing of the leper. Let's start with the cleansing of the leper and the ashes of the red heifer. You get those two, you in minutes. Now, laying on the hands, that's Leviticus 16. Everybody, very few people understand what laying on the hands means today. That's the two goats, the goat for Azazel and the goat for YHVH in Leviticus 16. And then the order of the resurrections. Sorry, the resurrections now to do. And then the great white throne. 
got to understand that. How simple is this? Hebrews, and then this is the key to the whole thing, impossible. Something is impossible. It's impossible for somebody. Something is impossible for somebody. Who is the somebody, and what is impossible? Answer that, and you've now gone on to getting out of Hebrews chapter 6, you. And then we have the once enlightened, the taste of heavenly gifts, the partakers of the Holy Spirit, the taste of the good works of God, and, and the powers. We have that. We have people that have done all that and lock us up. And if they fall away, wait a minute. What's that mean? What does fall away mean? Does it mean loss of salvation? They cannot be renewed again to repentance. And if uh, you have this crucified man for themselves and bringing shame to Christ. Okay? There it is. There's your list. Simple, huh? Notice how it always ends on Z. No matter what the list is, I always end on Z. Did you ever notice that? No, why? I don't have a Y on my list. Okay. We'll make this W, X. We'll put the Y right here. That'll work. I can use another one. That's why Anna beats me at the word for friends thing now. I'm so discouraged. Okay. There's your list. And as often the case, there's two views. I don't know if I have time to flip it. I won't. I won't flip it. I'll just run it. There's two views as to what all of that means. I got two camps. They looked at the list and they said, okay, this is what it means. Another group looked at the list and said, nope, this is what I think it means. Two camps of scholarship. Two prominent views of what it all means. Two camps. And what do they do every chance they get? It's called typical church behavior. What do they do? They fight. Oh, I love it. They sit back and they throw rocks and bottles at each other. Uh, and it's quite likely that all of you have heard one or both of the two prominent teaching positions on Hebrews 5, 10 through 6, 6. And probably everyone listening to the internet as well. And there are thousands of them, as you know. And I would say safely that 90% of everyone who will listen to this lecture is confident that their school or their position is correct and the other position is incorrect. Probably 99%. And if I asked you to raise hands... On your two positions here in a minute, I would guarantee you that this church is probably split right down the middle. Probably how it is. And I would caution you, though, to be uh, suspicious of your school or your position. Don't be so confident. Get a little wobbly-legged here. You may not be standing so good. No human expositor is infallible, except... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Glad you, glad you didn't answer that. No human expositor is infallible. And many have an allegiance to a denomination. And that denomination has been told what to think on that list. And they have an allegiance to it. And that allegiance will take precedence over scholarship. Over reason. Why is that? What I mean to say is that it's very difficult for the denominated 
And yes, I made that word up. I like it. It's my own word. GCI will steal it from me. But it's very very difficult for the denominated. And that's those whose loyalty interferes with their reason. It's very difficult for them to relinquish the security of their denomination or their organization to which they are a member. What do I mean it is very difficult to relinquish their security? You don't toe the line on Hebrews 6. What happened to you? You don't get no money. No church going to hire you. You ain't in our denomination no more. You don't believe what we tell you is the truth on Hebrews 6. 5, 10 through 6, 6. And poverty can be scary. Ask glory. So the motivations of these folks must be brought into question. Because this is one of those really cool places in Scripture where both sides, where both schools, where the two most popular, the two most common, the two most taught are both wrong. It's really cool. They're both wrong. I love it. I find that delightful in an eccentric sort of way. What are the odds that each of these very large, very confident groups who have been fighting for hundreds of years could both be unsound, both be in error? What are the odds? Really good. In fact, the, way, the minute, minute you start seeing them throwing bottles and rocks at each other and cursing each other, then, you know, chances are they're both wrong. They've been fighting, like I said, hundreds of years. And they're equally incorrect. They're perfectly incorrect. And you must admit, the irony of all of that is is intriguing. How did it happen? What is the anatomy, the steps that lead to such a theological war where both sides are evenly misguided? And I find this is such a mess. I just, I find it wonderful. I don't know why I do. It just explains why were you weird before you came to Cliffside, I guess. Or did we make you weird? But I'm fascinated by it because it's such a display of human behavior. It makes our Christmas party look like a Boy Scout meeting. Anyway, first it is obvious that neither side recognized how we began the lecture tonight. Neither side looked at Hebrews 5.10 through 6.6 and said that Matthew 12, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is the underlayment. The the nation of Israel rejecting the Messiahship of Christ, neither side said that is the context of Hebrews 6. Neither side even considered it. They also didn't see Romans 4 as an obstacle to their position, or John 3.16 for that matter. And no one noticed that Hebrews has five warnings. No one said, wait a minute, these are five warnings here. How does my position fit with the blasphemy, the Matthew 12 demarcation line, the blasphemy? How does my position fit with the five warnings? This is the third warning. How does my position fit into the third warning? No one said that in these very, very old positions now. No one noticed that 510 through 66 is contained within the third warning. And you make all those mistakes, and certainly you should expect trouble. Okay, what are the two views? No, I'm trying to push all of this in so that I can finish it and get us back where we go. There's really two views here. I'll put all that back on board. 
and I got to get in the car. I, I have my way of saying it. The same, one of you says that this is about saved people who then lose their salvation and become lost, or what they will also say is fallen. Okay? That's view number one. And the other view says, no, these people have never been saved. They are the never saved. And they are always going to be lost and always going to be fallen. That is the two views of Hebrews 6. 5, 10 through 6, 6. And these folks would come here all the time to talk to me. All the time. And I know one of them is listening to me on the internet right now. And they would come here and argue with me. They like to do it because they know what I think here. I'm actually... Uh, Pretty well known on this view. And they, ha- they hold their position with such ferocity, it's, it's really a sight to behold. And it's fascinating to me because I know that both sides are wrong. I'm going to prove it to you really fast. It's really easy. It doesn't take much time. One side, again, side number one, view number one, says that all of this is about saved people who fell away who lost their salvation. And this becomes a very important word. Something is impossible, remember? Something is impossible. What is impossible? And impossible for who? The other group, the never saved and the lost fallen. Now it should be it should be noticed that there is kind of an addendum to both of these, what we call in theology school, okay, they don't call it this. I call it this. The half saved. Okay? The half saved and fall, the half saved and fallen view. Notice that I hold it the half saved position ultimately isn't valid and it has to give itself up into one of these other positions. It, it will mold back in. It's either going to have to assign itself to view number one or view number two. I don't consider the half saved a real view. But there are huge churches in this town that have the half-saved view. Just on its face, it ought to make you suspicious, isn't it? Can we really have a half I don't believe it's possible to have a half-saved. If you have a half-saved, what's the obvious question? Can you have a quarter-saved? Can you have a seven-eighth-saved? Can you have a three-sixteenth-saved? Can you yeah, half-dead? Can you, can you have a quarter-dead? I mean, this is really, uh, I can take you to a church where they will stand up and scream that this is true. How can I deal with it? What do I do? I can't stop myself. What do I do? Yes, I grin. And that offends them. They don't invite me back. How can you have that? I ask them. There's got to be a, you know, a 564th of you. A thing? You gotta be, right? You can't just be half. Why did we pick half? That makes sense. Anyway. Okay. There is no half such thing as a half saved view in spite of their aggressive emotional insistence. View number one says that this passage teaches that if a person is saved today and then a particular sin, what's the obvious question? What sin is it that's going to do this to you? But a particular sin or a series of accumulating sins. What's the obvious question now? 
what order are they in? And how many of them are there? If there's ten in the right order, then what do I want to know? What if you get two out of order? What if you got eleven? What if you got nine? What if you got nine and a half? That should do it. Right? I don't want to be disrespectful. <laughs> yes, I do. That's a fake. Don't want to be disrespectful. I absolutely want to be disrespectful. But they say that if you have a series, a particular sin, that they, they designate. And if you have it, what happens to you? That's right. You're out of this church and you've lost your salvation and give us your money anyway. But don't show up. Or a series of these accumulating sins that they've decided. Notice they decide. And if that said person, by utilizing the power of their free will, then decides to cast off the blood of Christ, they're going to scrub it off. Comet. Brillo pad. I hope that you, you're going to scrub off the just for fun. Don't you, you use a, a belt sander. That will teach you a very fast lesson how ignorant you are trying to get the blood of Christ off of you. Sandblast yourself. Let's leave no doubt as to your ignorance. But they say that if you commit a sin or a series of sin or you decide that you're going to, with your free will, you're going to get rid of the blood of Christ because what are you? You powerful. You're get rid of that blood of Christ. Then that said person can never, never, I say never, it's impossible, that person can never be saved again. That's view one. Got it? It's impossible. There's no hope. Impossible. A man can be saved once, become lost, or a woman become lost, and cannot repent. It's impossible to repent. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. you got a card straight to hell, a through pass. There's nothing you can do about it. That's view one. A person who comes to the church then and says, I was once saved, but I rejected my salvation, and now I want to be resaved. What does the church have to say to him with that view? Go away. Yeah. <laughs> there is no hope for you. It is impossible for you to be resaved. I love that word, resaved. Hopefully you see the problem first. Reconcile this with God seeking to save the lost. God so loved the creation, whosoever will may come. God so loved the creation, so loved sinners, that one that is struggling through his life, he's going to shoot him in the head. Reconcile that with God's love. Try it. And the contortions necessary is just astonishing to defend view number one, which is why the half-saved addendum was created. It's called by me the half-saved addendum because they had to say, okay, that doesn't make any sense. We've got to have a half-saved addendum. They were sort of second. They were five sixteenths to six seventy seconds saved. Whatever you want. They're not fully saved. Fully saved. They're, they're not really saved. They're not truly saved. They'll insist they were only this partial saved. And that solved the problem for them. Because they had to deal with all of that stuff. Taste it. Heavenly gift. Partakers. Taste it. All of that. It seemed that the Holy Spirit seemed like those were saved people. But no, they couldn't have been. All that stuff didn't really mean what it says to me. And see, so they had to get rid of that because they saw the problem with it, which is uh, overwhelming evidence that these Hebrews that are written to are Christians the way they're described. That had to be dealt with by the half-saved people, and um, 
Off they went. But they didn't see that they had the same difficulty, did they? A saved person or a half-saved person, whatever, you have to end up saying that they cannot be what? They cannot be saved. If you're in the half-saved category, you cannot be saved. It's impossible. Really? It becomes impossible then to save who? The people who look like they're what? Half-saved. And we call those people the what? The hypocrites. What are you? Everybody who is not a hypocrite, raise your hand. Good. That was a trick question, you hypocrites. Hypocrites are impossible to save? Oops. And then we got nobody saved. And then the never saved position, the never savers, they just throw up their hands here at Hebrews 6 and they give up. These people to whom Paul is writing are not saved, they said, and they will never be saved, and they cannot be saved. It is what? Impossible to save. That's what they say. There are people that it is impossible for God to save. Some things are just impossible for God. That's your view? Matthew 19, 26. With God, all things are possible. Is, it, is, it, is there such a thing that, that God would have somebody out there that it is impossible for him to save? Do you really think that? Reconcile that with the love of God for sinners. Reconcile the omnipotence. Reconcile 2 Peter 3, 9. It calls him long-suffering. He said he's long-suffering. He wishes that none should perish. That all should come. Obviously, the author of Hebrews is not talking about salvation. What's he talking about? talking about repentance. It cannot be about salvation. If you think Hebrews 5, 10 through 6, 6 is about salvation, you are in trouble. You're going to be in that half saved, three quarters saved, seven eighths saved, fully saved, never saved, impossible to save nightmare that you cannot defend that is against the character of God. What he's doing, the author of Hebrews, as you know, I think that's Paul. He's telling the saved Christian Jews that it is impossible for for them to do something. When you are saved, when you are a Christian, there is something impossible for you to do. What do you suppose it is? It's impossible for something. It is impossible for you to lose your salvation. It's doing the exact opposite of what the two big camps are saying. It is impossible to do something. Next week, I'll explain that. What is impossible for Christians to do? Because it puts Christ to open shame if you think it's possible. And it isn't possible. You can't put Christ to open shame. That's impossible. Know what's impossible. You will go through your life a lot easier. Now... John, I have to turn this off because otherwise people who come up here to say bad things about you, you push the button twice. Here one. Okay. It's possible that I got that right. Let's rise and be dismissed.